I wonder if you have people in your life who are not part of your biological family, but you consider them to be family anyways. Uh, I can remember when I was growing up, uh, another Thiessen family, not related to us at all, was super close to us, uh, and you might know them, Rick and Monica and Jeff. Uh, Jeff was uh, a close friend right from when I was young, and we spent lots of time at each other's houses, and Rick and Monica became Uncle Rick and Auntie Monica to me and my two brothers, and my parents were Uncle Stan and Auntie Val to Jeff and his brother and sister because we were so close, and we spent so much time at each other's houses and doing things together. Uh, It was like family, even though we weren't connected or related by blood. Uh, Perhaps you have people in your life that way, that you think of that way. Maybe you call them uncle or aunt or something like that, and maybe that's particularly true of you if you grew up in a broken home and your biological family wasn't always there for you. Uh, You needed other people to fulfill that function of family in your life. In today's story that we read, we're going to read about Jesus' biological family, but we're going to read that there is a bond that is stronger than just the biological family. The spiritual family functions as as a community for us that is a, a bond that goes even deeper than family ties. And so we're going to read this story in in Mark chapter 3. Fascinating story, lots of different layers to it. And what we're going to find is this, that Jesus' true family surrenders all else to do God's will. Jesus' true family surrenders all else in order to do God's will. So here we go. Here's the story starting in verse 20 of Mark chapter 3. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul. That's a name associated with Satan by that time. By the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mothers and brother, mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked around at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Really fascinating story. Lots of layers to it. And Mark actually writes this story with a literary device known as an intercalation or sometimes called a chiasm. We're going to call it a sandwich because that's an easier word for us all to understand. You make a sandwich, you put a piece of bread down, you put your meat on your sandwich, and then you put the bread on the top. And that's how Mark tells the story. The first piece of bread is the story about his family coming to get him. They'd heard that he was in this house and they wanted to go and get him and rescue him for some reason. Then he interrupts himself. He puts the meat on the sandwich and tells this story about the religious leaders and this, uh, this thing about driving out demons and, and how does that all work? 
And then he returns to his first story about his, his family. He puts the bread on the top of the sandwich and says his family arrived. And then they had this dialogue uh, with them. So it's this literary device that, that includes parallel elements at the beginning and the end. And then there's an, a special point in the middle. And sometimes it's, it's used to make a specific point. The center point of the story often holds that point. In this story, the, the theme runs through the entire story. It weaves it together into a, a common whole. And we're going to unpack that as we go along. So there's three main uh, players in the story that we'll look at one at a time. First, we have the teachers of the law. These are people who were unfriendly towards Jesus and antagonistic towards his mission. Secondly, we had Jesus' biological family. These are people who are friendly towards Jesus, but also antagonistic towards his mission. And then thirdly, we have Jesus' true family. These are people who are friendly towards Jesus and also invested in the mission and join him in it. So we'll take it in that order. First, the teachers of the law. These folks are unfriendly and antagonistic towards Jesus. So in the last couple of chapters and in the, the uh, intermediary time between the story we studied last week and this story, Jesus has done a few things that has angered these religious leaders. He's healed someone on the Sabbath. So instead of being happy that he was healing, they were upset that he healed on the Sabbath. They, they said, um, your disciples aren't fasting like they should be. And they were offended by that. And some of the things he was teaching, some of the things that he was doing, they thought he's breaking the Old Testament law. He's, he's blaspheming uh, against God. And so they, they demonstrate typical human behavior here, okay? This is behavior that I think we see in our world today, especially in these last months in this political cycle that we've witnessed. They take Jesus, and, and if they were honest with themselves, they probably could have said some of what Jesus is doing is good. He's healing people. He's driving out demons. They don't question that Jesus is actually doing these things. He, he, he clearly is. But they could have said he's doing some things we like, but some things we're not certain about. But instead, they took the things that they weren't certain about and they completely demonized him. They painted him with a broad brush and said, you are completely out of line. And we can't take anything that you say seriously. Have you heard people do that in our society these days? It's cancel culture, right? Somebody says something that somebody else doesn't agree with and say, well, I don't respect that person at all anymore. I can't listen to that person about anything anymore or, or think that they do anything good. We, we cancel them out. And so this is what they do. They, they actually look at him and say, you are completely evil. You are being driven along by Satan. That's how you're doing these things. Is Satan is giving you the power to drive out demons and to do the healing that you're doing. Now, Jesus responds with relative ease to uh, dispel these accusations. Uh, first, he says, Satan can't be divided against himself, right? If one of Satan's main tactics is to send demons into people to take them captive to, to evil, and then I come along and set people free from these demonic oppressions, then how are we working together? We're not. We're, we're actually doing opposite things. I'm undoing the things that Satan is doing. Satan is, is sowing oppression and I'm setting people free. And we're going to talk about demonic oppression in two weeks' time. So we won't get into the details of that right now. But Jesus is saying here, Satan's kingdom is not imploding from the inside. Instead, I'm actually attacking it from the outside. And so he uses this metaphor of the strong man and his house. And in this scenario, the strong man actually represents Satan. And Satan is, is oppressing people and bringing them into his house 
and oppressing them and keeping them in bondage and darkness. And Jesus is saying, I'm tying up the strong man. I'm tying up Satan, going into his house and taking the plunder from his house, those he has plundered, and taking them back and setting them free. That's how I'm operating. So I am setting myself against evil. And Jesus here recognizes that there is a struggle between good and evil. That Satan is at work in the world. That there's a kingdom of darkness. But Jesus has come to bring light. Uh, Jesus' mission was to overcome evil and to empower others to do the same. And so though the accusation against him is that he's working with evil, he says, no, I'm actually doing the exact opposite. I'm dismantling evil in what it is that I'm doing. Now, then we get to a couple of verses that have been the subject of much conversation throughout history. The, the topic of the unforgivable sin in verse 29. Now, before we get to that, we have to read verse 28, because if we miss verse 28, we're not actually understanding verse 29 correctly. So look at verse 28 again. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all of their sins and every slander that they utter. Now, that word slander is actually the, the same word blasphemy as is used in the next, the next verse. So he's saying people can be forgiven all of their sins and every blasphemy that they might blaspheme. That's the literal language that's used here. So before we get to the exception to the rule, we need to, to read the rule. And the rule is that Jesus is overwhelmingly gracious and extravagantly gracious. He forgives all sin. He even forgives blasphemy against God. That's the place where we have to start. And that's really good news for you and me because we're guilty of all kinds of sin. We're guilty of all kinds of slander. And Jesus comes to us with grace and acceptance and forgiveness And offers it to us. That was his mission by going to the cross was to provide this forgiveness. So we have to start there. And some of you today might need to receive that and say that doesn't matter the sin that I've committed in my past. I can be released from that. I can be released from the shame I feel about that because of God's extravagant forgiveness. So that's where we have to start is in verse 28. We can't skip it. And, and actually, we could think of the Apostle Paul as an example of this, right? He was someone who denied Christianity. He was someone who persecuted Christians and tried to destroy the church. Like, think about every kind of sin and blasphemy. And God got his attention, forgave him, and used him in powerful ways. So that's verse 28. Verse 29, of course, has the exception there. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. Now, we have to, like every passage of scripture that we read, make sure we remember this is said in a context. Okay, and the context here is that these religious leaders had just looked the Son of God in the face and called him Satan. He had just seen the light of God on full display, the activity of God in the world. And instead of giving credit to Jesus, they give credit to the evil one. They look Jesus in the eye and they attribute his power and his purpose to evil. 
Tim Geddert writes this, those who attribute the work of Jesus to Satan and satanic power cannot simultaneously receive the forgiveness that depends on recognizing Jesus as God's agent for salvation. You cannot simultaneously attribute Jesus' work to Satan and accept the forgiveness of God that comes through Jesus. The word blasphemy here, literally, if you pull it apart in the Greek, means someone who is slow or sluggish to call something good that is good, or slow or sluggish to identify what is truly bad. So they have completely misidentified good and evil in this scenario. They have deliberately and intentionally cast Jesus to be the enemy. And there are other places, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 10, 1 John 5, that speak about the finality of this kind of sin. It reminds us that there is an eternal judgment, that there is a judgment day, and we will stand before Jesus and have to answer for the decisions that we made and who we chose to trust. And when we stand before him, there is a moment where it is too late to change our minds. And so the invitation that we should read here is to ascribe to Jesus what is Jesus, to give him that power and the honor and the glory that is due to him. Now, these verses have caused many Christians over the years to live in doubt and fear and questioning, have I committed this unforgivable sin? In short, I want to answer by saying, if you're asking yourself that question, the answer is no. I can remember being at Briarcrest College in 2006, sitting in a class, and we were talking about uh, Pharaoh and Moses and the Exodus and the 10 plagues uh, from the book of, uh, of, of Exodus in the Old Testament. And it says there that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, or he, he hardened his own heart. And the question the professor asked us was, how would you know if your heart is hard towards God? And his answer was really simple, and I've remembered it to this day. He said, if, you're, if you have the self-awareness to ask yourself, is my heart hard towards God? The answer is no. Because it takes a soft heart to ask the question. If you had a hard heart, you wouldn't care. You wouldn't even ask the question. And so I think if, if this, these verses cause you to wonder, have I done that? Uh, that question and self-examination in and of itself answers the question. James Edwards writes this, the sin against the Holy Spirit is not an indefinable offense. Like it's not something that you have to wonder if you've committed or not. But it's a specific misjudgment that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than by good. That he is empowered by the devil rather than by God. That's what Mark, that's what Jesus is writing about. And Mark reminds us of the context in verse 30 by saying, Jesus said this because they were telling him he had an evil spirit. That was the specific act he's speaking against. So that's the first group, the teachers of the law. They're unfriendly to Jesus. They're antagonistic towards his mission. So let's move then to Jesus' biological family. Here we find that they're friendly towards Jesus, but they, they, they too are antagonistic towards his mission. At least they are now. So who is Jesus' family? In Mark chapter 6, verse 3, we read that Jesus' mother, which we know, uh, which we know uh, her name is Mary, uh, his brothers, he had four of them. Their names were James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And he has at least two sisters who aren't named in, in Mark chapter 6. Uh, th- this is his biological family. At the beginning of this story, they hear that Jesus is in this house. They hear that he's so busy he can't even eat. They've heard about the things that he's doing and they go to, to take charge of him. 
That verb could mean to seize him or to arrest him. Like they want to go and forcibly take him and remove him from this situation because they think he's out of his mind. He's lost his marbles. And I, I think about it from the brother's perspective, and you, you, maybe you could get it. Uh, you know, you grew up with Jesus in the same house. You had the same parents, the, went to the same school, same education, same upbringing, same rules, same everything. Uh, you watch Jesus become a carpenter, and then he turns 30, and he starts doing all of this stuff, and he claims to be the son of God. I mean, if that was your brother, you might be forgiven for having a few doubts about him as well. And so they go to Jesus and they want to, to take him away from this scenario. See, they were supportive of him as a person. They wanted to, to take him into shelter, take him to a place of safety where he could reset and regroup and they could talk to him about what he should do and what he shouldn't do. They, they, they were family and they were probably concerned about the shame that Jesus might bring upon their family through the things that he was doing. So they were willing to accept Jesus as a person, but they weren't willing to accept the whole package. They weren't willing to jump on board with the mission, at least not yet. This reminds me of a popular approach to Christianity these days, which I like to call fast food Christianity. So picture yourself going into a fast food restaurant. Okay, pretend you're in Wendy's. Uh, I like going to Wendy's. And you, you stand there and you look up at the menu board. And uh, there's all kinds of options up there. And there's meal combos that you can choose, right? There's, I don't know, like eight or ten of them or something like that. And I think when I was a kid, I remember when you ordered a meal combo, you got what the meal combo was. You got your drink, you got your burger, and you got your fries, and that was it. Well, now if you're at Wendy's, you can look at that combo and say, well, I, I like the idea of it, but I don't really like how it's all put together. So I'm going to make a substitution, or I'm going to change something. Or, you know, for me, when I order a hamburger at Wendy's, I tell them, take the cheese off my hamburgers, because cheese ruins hamburgers. And I will stick with that opinion. So take the cheese off my hamburger. I don't want it. Uh, and then I'll order a drink. And then I've got all kinds of options for my side. I could have French fries. I could have a baked potato. I could have chili. They've got a bunch of salads you could try. And so there's options I can choose from. And if I don't like it, I just tweak it. It's perfectly legitimate to do that at a fast food restaurant. Go ahead. Enjoy the substitutions. That's what they're there for. You can't do that with the Christian worldview. Christianity is not a fast food restaurant. But many believers today take the approach of, I like the main idea. You know, I like Jesus. I like the fact that he forgave my sins. Uh, I really like the fact that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. But there are some things about the worldview that don't really sit right with me, or maybe I find them offensive. And so I'm just going to take this out and substitute it with something else. Or I'm going to take this belief over here. I'm going to tweak it just a little bit. And before you know it, you're, you're not really talking about Christianity anymore. You're talking about a distorted version of Christianity. It, it's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Jesus came to proclaim. And pretty soon we come up with a syncretistic worldview. That means we take bits and pieces from that religion or that worldview and we add it all together and we call it Christianity, but it's really not anymore. Fast food Christianity. And so in Romans 12, Paul says to us that we should not be conformed by the pattern of the world, but we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And then we will know what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So we invite God's spirit to transform our mind as we study the scriptures, as we pray, as we listen to him, as we're in community with our spiritual family. 
we understand what God's will is. And as we do so, we can then act it out. And we are then a part of Jesus' true family. So let's move to that third group then, Jesus' true family. These are folks who are friendly towards Jesus and deeply invested in the mission. In fact, you see what he says at the end there. My mother and brother and sister is the person who does God's will. Not the person who knows God's will. Not the person who understands what the Bible teaches. It's the person who does God's will. Who lives it out. Remember, we're saying Jesus' true family surrenders all else to do God's will. There's sacrifices that we have to make at times. Now, we, 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 we read this story and we could think, Jesus is kind of harsh to his family here, isn't he? Like his biological family. But he's making a point here and, and he, he reinforces this point in, in Mark chapter 13 where he says that the gospel will divide families. It'll divide brother and sister and parent and child. And in a lot of places around the world and even here, it does that. You know, we hear about from our missionaries in Central Asia that if a person wants to, to, to convert from being a Muslim to being a Christian, that's going to have a huge social price attached to it. They are going to be ostracized from their family. And that happens here too. Some of you maybe have walked that, that difficult journey of making the choice to turn to Jesus, which meant that there would be people who would reject you. Sometimes a claim to Christ means being abandoned by family. And that's why it's so important for us to remind ourselves that there is a bond greater than biology. The spiritual bond that attaches us together, that connects us as the body of Jesus Christ is, is far deeper and far stronger than any biological bond. We are a family as people who believe in Jesus and commit ourselves to his mission. And that bond is rock solid. Commitment to the gospel means turning from all else in repentance and faith in order to pursue Jesus as the one who is most beautiful and most worthy of all. It means a new community. And this community crosses ethnic and national uh, and race lines. It includes people from all tribes and all languages across the world. And it's a spiritual bond that grounds us as together we do God's will. Now, what I find so hopeful about this story is that no matter, no matter where you are and no matter which group maybe you'd identify yourself with, you can always turn to Jesus more fully. Jesus' family actually become very significant in the ministry of the church. We know that Mary was present when Jesus was dying on the cross. We know that Jesus' brothers became leaders in the church. In fact, his brother James was one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church. We read about him in Acts chapter 15. Uh, he was martyred for his faith, and he also wrote the New Testament book known as James. Uh, it's also believed that his brother Judas wrote the New Testament book we know as Jude. So these were people who maybe didn't quite get the mission yet. But as Jesus continued to do what Jesus continued to do, they saw him for who he really was and became invest, invested in his mission. And they did the will of God and became Jesus' true family, not only biologically related to him, but truly 
a part of his spiritual family. So a few questions as we close today. Jesus' true family surrenders all else to do God's will. Does that describe you? Are there things that you are not willing or not ready to surrender to Jesus? Is there any elements of fast food Christianity present within you? Or how do you see that playing out in society? And then lastly, how has the the family of Jesus been a support to you? And how might you invest in this spiritual family? As we go to prayer, I want to invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you on any one of these questions. Or perhaps another detail that has uh, stood out to you this morning. Allow him to speak, receive his voice, and respond with obedience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to us now. We ask that you would convict us of sin. We ask that you would encourage us towards greater godliness. We want to be people who do your will as a part of your family. Reveal to us any areas of sin in our lives that are stopping us from fully surrendering to you. May we be disciples that are fully invested in your mission. And thank you so much that you invite us to be a part of your family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.